a recurring strategy or resource for us has been to go deep into the wells of time that each of us carry with us. Hello and welcome to Tete Tete, the Rice Architecture Podcast Series. I'm your host, Carolyn Francis, and today we have another installment in our series of digital remote interviews in collaboration with Black Journal. We have with us Jennifer Newsom and Tom Carruthers of Dream the Combine. Jennifer is an assistant professor at the University of Minnesota School of Architecture. In addition to their creative practice, Tom is co-owner of Jacobson Carruthers. Thank you both for joining us today to talk about your work. Thanks so much. All right, let's jump right into it. Dream the Combine is a Minneapolis-based architecture practice that operates primarily at the scale of the installation, often working in dialogue with architecture-adjacent fields such as art and cultural theory. How did the firm get its start, and where did this initial interest in a multifaceted approach stem from? I think there was a determination back in 2012. We were just looking and saying, look, we've got enough experience. We've got enough licenses. What do we want to do? We went through three, four years of doing a number of different projects at different scales. I had an early commitment to sculpture and was fortunate to work for a sculptor, Ursula von Reidingsvard. And that early body of work didn't feel resolved yet. And Jennifer and I are very different. And so it's been kind of positive and provocative. Dream the Combine is a way to both simultaneously kind of go deep in the past and also explore other narratives than can be explored in traditional practice. And I think that, you know, when we started, it was a bit of a risk, right? Like starting your own practice. And we had both worked in New York and in London, in my case, for a variety of firms. And we just wanted to have a go at putting more of our own voice out in the world. And so as Tom was talking about early on, we took on a lot of different types of projects. And public art installations. That's the part where we feel most fulfilled and where we're getting kind of the most traction in terms of the audiences we're engaged with. So that's been the focus of the practice, I would say, primarily in the last four years or so. So to build off that, what in particular interests you about installations as a form of architecture? Installation is a way to provoke, test, but also to learn about how vulnerable you can be in public space and where people go with that. You can kind of encode certain things in the work and then see to what extent people are decoding the same things or different things. Yeah, and I think that there's something about, you know, the specificity of the scale, that it's a way of testing ideas. I mean, we kind of talk about our work as though they're, each project is like a sketch. You know, like it's something where you're kind of putting it out into the world and you learn a lot from the reactions to it. I feel as though every single project that we've done, I've learned so much about how people interact with each other, how they interact with space, how they're provoked by what we make. That's been super interesting about working in installations as a kind of typology. What strikes me about your projects is that you often work in close collaboration with engineers and fabricators, allowing each field to inform the other in a productive and often fascinating way. How has this effort towards an active partnership impacted the way your work activates public space? A recurring strategy or resource for us has been to go deep into the wells of time that each of us carry with us. So there's a kind of resourcefulness to just going 
deep in who you are intrinsically, I think, that's been helpful to Jennifer and I. The engineer that we have worked with most on projects is a fellow named Clayton Binkley, who just recently left Arup and has gone out on his own. And he also like has a background in sculpture and fabrication in New York. He had his own metal shop. And those core relationships are being able to work with Clayton. Jim Combine, you know, would not be the same if it was a different relationship there. I think that's critical. Yeah, it's about like getting back to yourself in a way. And I think, you know, working in close collaboration with people, you know, there's a kind of intimacy there that I think is very personal. Uh, you know, you get to know people really well. And I think it gets richer because there's just a deeper integration of all these different kinds of skill sets coming together, right? Like people are bringing their expertise to the test. It's just more about like, how do we kind of integrate all of these different types of knowledge? You get certain glimmers that become incredibly helpful touchstones like years after you heard them. So David Ajay giving a lecture at Columbia and self-describing as a scribbler, that has got us through many projects, right? Because it's not precious. You know, we are really imagining ourselves in the place and focused on what are the invitations to performance, the ambiguities, what are the, the kind of critical moments that we're working in service of. And then it's pretty clear, like you feel in a visceral way when the project has a core intent, like it has a life that you can work in service of. You know, the, the fabrication side of life, I will also say from, for my part, has been a way for us to keep a degree of independence. Your work, such as the 2018 MoMA PS1 installation Hide and Seek, investigates the concept of illusory space that distorts in reaction to the visitor's interactions with it. How do you approach installations in a space to actively inhabit rather than simply view? Like the vulnerability on PS1 for us was hanging the whole proposal on this idea that we could deprivilege the museum to create these invitations to performance for people. And so there was really quite a learning curve for us to maybe understand, not systematically, but how do you structure invitations for people? And knowing that courtyard so well, you know, what are the aspects of that that are already really interesting? Like the kind of fashion parade on the sidewalk. There's a lot that's socially already fascinating. Maybe looking at it as a storied space there at PS1 and seeing an opportunity to focus upon people. We're always thinking about the body in relation to the work. It's not meant as this completely abstracted, overly analytical, you know, picking a part of experience and separating it out according to like our various senses and our, you know, ways of documenting the project. Like all of those things fit together to create a kind of holistic understanding of the work. I think we're really interested in that audience reaction in the kind of visceral bodily response that you might have to being in a particular place that sometimes you can't even really articulate with words. I'm sort of interested in all of those different facets of human experience. And so for PS1, we were very conscious about not making just like an object that gets plopped in the center of that courtyard, but really trying to kind of think about the environment, that all of those multiple courtyard spaces as a kind of totality. And like, how does the installation spread across all of these different aspects of the courtyard? When we were in the early proposal stages on, on PS1, we met up with my sculptor mentor, Ursula, and showed her this 3D printed plastic model of a series of kind of volumes or bars 
like sort of multiply shish kebabbing the museum of PS1 itself. And we had some text and a kind of maybe early Photoshop something making you feel like what you're inside, what it might feel like. And we asked about people taking pictures of themselves. And Ursula came back with something I never expected to hear. And she just looked at us and said, feed the hunger that they have inside them. You know, we didn't necessarily think about PS1 in the context of like people taking all these selfies. But if that's what people want to do, there's a certain freedom to that. And that is a perfectly like valid response to what we've made. I think we start by working with difference. And that leads us to a kind of model of distributed authorship. We've been tending to define concepts or architectural concepts as metaphorical insofar as they're, they have kind of two primary components with relationships in between, a tenor and a vehicle. And what's really nice about that is that by working metaphorically with the concept and working metaphorically in terms of how we collaborate both with each other and with others, it leaves room for other voices to come in and author the project. When people come to PS1, and in 2018, they were to see our installation. I think from the early on, we just assumed that people were going to take it with them when they left. If we can somehow make an impact in someone's lived experience, that they remember what we have done, they reflect on it, and they carry it with them in some way, I feel like that, I mean, that's good enough. Because it, like you can't really control all the different ways in which people are going to interpret what you're doing or, or are going to experience it or what they're even going to do when they're there. Looking at the larger scale, how have you seen architecture, both within the greater profession as well as in the Minneapolis area, act in direct response to a larger conversation surrounding structural racism in the built environment? You know, architecture as a discipline has to reckon with itself, has to reckon with its foundations, how it came into being, how it differentiated itself from building, how architecture you know, tries to carve out a specific realm of professional expertise for itself at the exclusion of other ways of knowing. And it is a multi-scalar and a multivalent issue. You can talk about architectural practice, you can talk about architectural content, you can talk about the canon, you can talk about precedent, you can talk about labor, you can, you can talk about all of the things. You know, the conversations that I've been having are really interested in exploring other models, because, you know, the models that we have, reforming them only makes very slow incremental change. So, you know, what would it look like to start an anti-racist design school? trying to figure that out. I'm working with you know, a number of educators and practitioners around the country to try and imagine what that looks like. What does a kind of participatory design process that also accounts for wealth creation and distribution of ownership in ways that are actually reparative in communities? Like, what does that look like? As architects, if we're responsible for health, safety, and welfare, you know, I think that encompasses notions of equity, justice, belonging, all of those things. It can't be ignored. With whatever tools and capacity you have, it's imperative that you participate in the conversation. Anything I might say to answer this question is first and foremost going to amplify what Jennifer's already said. As a Canadian who has witnessed racism in the built environment in Canada and here in the United States, this time it is something akin metaphorically to a window where I do think there is evidence that people, white people, are waking up, that they have been living behind a veil of ignorance of their own creation, where much of 
the structural racism is hidden by their own hands, then architecture as a profession, imperfect though it is, is a direct recipient and beneficiary of racism. So again, if it's a service profession, who, what are we working in service of? Architecture as an instrument of power that's highly you know, imbricated in that. You can't separate it from the ways in which it comes into being, right? So a lot of things are going to have to change. Whether they will change, you know, the jury's out on that. But I do think that what's different now versus, you know, in the 60s and 70s and the civil rights movement that my, you know, mother and father and aunts and uncles and grandparents were a part of is how broad the coalition is. And it's really driven by young people. And so that is really exciting and very encouraging. Minneapolis, like we took our kids to the first protests the day after George Floyd was murdered. And our kids were very worried. And then our son raised his hands in a black power salute. And another protester just outside walking by did the same thing right back to him. And so there is something about standing up for justice, even the tentatively clenched fist of a nine-year-old, there's a positive feedback loop that happened in that moment that's very encouraging. And it needs to be said that this is four or five hundred years in the making, and we should not expect anything quickly, even as I think the time for patience has passed. So I'd like to touch more on the roles of architectural education and pedagogy. Jennifer, as an educator, I'd like to know if there are ways that you're thinking about addressing these issues in a studio context. Now, students are much more aware of the limits of their own education, of the beginnings of what they don't know. And so I, I think it's amazing that, you know, so many students have been writing letters and, you know, banding together and really like advocating much more for their own education. And so I think that, you know, it's certainly impacting my teaching somewhat, this more recent wave. These issues are not new for people of color who are teaching in the academy. You know, like I'm the 277th black female architect ever licensed in the United States. So talking about equity and inclusion, those are the buzzwords. Like that's already part of the lexicon if you're operating as one of the few people of color in a department of architecture. I think it's also it's important to talk about like the precarity that faculty of color face in educational environments. So you're still operating within that system. I am very encouraged that students are making more demands because the people who haven't been talking about the socio-political aspects of architecture, putting something out into the world, that's a provocation and a demand that they need to hear. For more information on Dream the Combine's projects, please visit the firm's website at www.dreamthecombine.com. If you liked what you heard today, please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe to our page on your favorite platforms to keep up with new releases as a part of our collaborative series with Flat Journal.
I'm your host, Carolyn Francis, and this has been Head Attack.